Today's message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning service times. Pastor Jason is currently in a series he's calling a walk through the book of Acts, Jesus at Work. And today is part 26 of Jason's series in the book of Acts. Today's sermon is entitled, The First Martyr, The Arrest. And we're in Acts chapter 6, looking at verses 8 through 15. Let's join Jason now in his sermon. I wanted to start off our time kind of posing a question. And that question is, who do you rub shoulders with? Who who, who rubs you? <laughs> it could be probably on the good side or on the bad side, right? Who do you spend time with? And And as I thought about that, I thought, you know what, we... We really need some, some good heroes today. Do we not? As I, as I look on television, the news, or, or this or that, it, it's kind of depressing for the most part. And when I, when I say heroes, I don't mean superheroes, because we have those in abundance and they keep coming more and more. I, I also don't mean superstars. We, we have many of them, and, and, and usually they're not ones that we really want to emulate and follow. What I mean are heroes of the faith, right? And today we are going to be looking front and center at a man that I believe is a hero of the faith, someone that should be emulated. And and that is Stephen. But you know, there's been many heroes of the faith. And and perhaps you've heard of Polycarp of Smyrna, or perhaps you haven't. He He's one of the church fathers. And he lived during the first century, and there's several things that, that kind of make Polycarp important. One is, is that the Apostle John discipled him. And no doubt this rubbing shoulders with the Apostle John had a profound impact on him. And as Polycarp continued to live throughout his life, the, the, the Roman Empire got stronger and stronger and persecuting more and more believers. And, and one day the Roman guards came to take Polycarp. And as they came to take Polycarp, you know what he did? He first fed them dinner. Not your normal reaction when somebody comes to take you and, and, and most likely kill you. But that's what Polycarp did. He, he fed them dinner. And then after he fed them dinner, he, he asked them if he could have an hour of prayer. And they gave him that hour of prayer. But instead of retreating into some room someplace where they couldn't hear him, he must have prayed right there with them listening. And, and the more that he prayed, the, the, and the more fervent that he prayed, the more passionate he prayed, the more of an impact it had on those Roman guards to such an extent that when he finished his prayer, they didn't even want to take him. It had that kind of an impact, that kind of influence. But of course they did take him because that, that was their job. That was what they were there to do. And so they took him and they brought him before the Roman proconsul who would then go ahead and determine whether or not he was going to li- live or die. And the proconsul likewise pleaded with Polycarp. And he said, listen, if you would deny Christ, if you would swear and reproach Christ, then I will release you. But Polycarp, his faith was undeterred. This is what he said. He said, Eighty and six years have I served him, speaking of, of Christ, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? 
And, and when the proconsul recognized that he was not going to recant, that he was not going to change his mind, he was not going to deny Christ, he was burned at the stake. But even before he was burned at the stake, he, he, he was stabbed to death and then lit on fire. And he's not alone in the pages of history. In fact, in the same time, a man named Ignatius, who was, who was his friend, who likewise was discipled by the Apostle John. Ignatius had had a very similar fate, except for a little bit more brutal, as they were then at that time putting Christians into the Colosseum. And news must have reached Ignatius that they were soon going to take him and put him in the Colosseum. And I don't know if churches started saying things like, oh, we'll protect you, come to our church, we'll hide you, or, or exactly what was going on. But Ignatius would have none of that. This is what he wrote. He said, I am writing to all the churches and I enjoin all that I am dying willingly for God's sake. If only you do not prevent it. I beg you, do not do me an untimely kindness. Allow me to be eaten by the beasts, which are my way of reaching to God. I am God's wheat and I am to be ground by the teeth of wild beasts so that I may become the pure bread of Christ. And these are the kind of men that that I I want to spend time with, that, that I want to rub shoulders with so that some of their faith would, would, would pass off to me. That, that I would be challenged by, by lives such as this. And, and these are the kind of men that, that they were willing to die for what they believed. They were willing to die for Jesus. And yet, even before such men, as Polycarp and Ignatius, we, we have Stephen. And there's not a whole lot of fanfare to say about Stephen. We, we can't say he's an apostle. You, you can't say even, I, I don't believe that he's a deacon. You can't say he's a priest, that he's a prophet, anything like that. And, and yet, God's word stops in, in the middle of everything that's going on with explaining how the church is reaching, reaching, reaching out and, 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 and reaching the Jews. And it spends this time zeroing in on this man's life. Because he is a hero of the faith, one that should be emulated, one that should be known. So so turn with me to Acts chapter 6, and, and we're going to be looking at verses 8 to 15. And and what I've entitled is, is the sermon, The First Martyr, Part 1, The Arrest. Martyr comes from the Greek word martyrus, which means literally a witness, or one who bears a testimony, and that is what we're going to see with the life of Stephen. He bears a testimony for Christ. In fact, I believe that's all that he did was bear a testimony from Christ. Follow along with me as I read out loud verse 8 to 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. 
They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. How remarkable. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you, you would not only bless the reading of your word, that you would bless the preaching, the teaching of your word. That you would allow your Holy Spirit to perform heart surgery upon us this morning. That, that as we gaze on, onto the, the face of, of your servant Stephen, that you would allow us to gaze upon you and that you would work in our lives in such a way that we would follow in his footsteps. That we would trust you wholeheartedly no matter what comes. And that we would be connected to you day in and day out. So guide our time now. May you be honored. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So in your bulletins, you you, you were given a, a brief little outline and basically what we're going to see are, are glimpses again of this man, Stephen, who was introduced to us some several weeks ago as, as we looked at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. And first, what we're going to see is this continuation of the attributes of Stephen. And we're going to see that with these attributes, Stephen's entire life was controlled by God. Then we're going to see the accusations against Stephen. And in that, we're going to see that Stephen is committed to God and to God's Word. And finally, we're going to see this. We're going to see the appearance of Stephen. And we're going to find that that the appearance of Stephen was because he was connected to God. But first, let me back up and, and, and give us a kind of a brush stroke perspective on what is going on in the book of Acts and what will be happening in subsequent chapters. Because this is a transitional time. It's with purpose and intentionality that Luke penned this account of Stephen right here in the book of Acts. Because up to this point, who's been the primary focus as far as preaching, teaching, even doing miracles? It's been Peter, right? Peter has been has been doing the preaching. He's been doing the teaching. And now what we see is we see this transition, this switch over to, to this, this man named Stephen. And that's important because the, the focus and the shift is changing. It's now going to go from, from this idea of Peter preaching continually and putting emphasis on what we saw, chapter 6, verse 1, the, na- the native Hebrews. That's who he was preaching to Mostly, it was those that were confined, that were from Jerusalem. And, and we've seen glimmerings of the fact that now the gospel is going outside of Jerusalem. And yet there's a transition to where it's almost as if one book is, 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 is closed, one door is closed, and now another book is opening, and that book is gonna be the Apostle Paul, and who's he gonna reach? He's gonna reach the Gentiles. Purely Gentile with no Jewish roots at all. But before we get to them and before we leave the native Jews, we, we, we have this emphasis now on these Jews that, that actually were from Gentile lands. 
on these Jews that are, that are considered Hellenistic Jews. And, and that's who Stephen represents. That's who Stephen preaches to. Those actually are the ones who end up arresting Stephen, putting him in the situation that we're going to find him in today. And so Stephen is, in many aspects, kind, kind of a bridge from, from one side of, of Acts to the other side. And yet it's, it's, he's not significant merely because he serves as this bridge. I would say he's not significant merely because he's the first martyr in the church, which he is. I would say along with that, which, which, what makes Stephen so significant is what Stephen stood for and how he stood. His life is very short-lived. Re- remember, the church has only been around for for several months up to this point. And out of all the men that could have been chosen, Stephen was chosen as one of the seven. That speaks of his character in a great, big, large way. Why? Because there were thousands and thousands of men to choose from. And yet when God recounts to us exactly the way he was chosen and who those men were, who's put at the top of the list? This man, Stephen. And, and what we're going to see about Stephen is first his attributes, his characteristics, which reveal to us that he is indeed controlled by God. Look at verse 8 with me. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So we see this word again, full. It means to be filled up with something. Remember, I, I, I pointed back to Pentecost and, and, and how the room filled with what sounded like a, a noise, right, of a great wind. This is the same word. Now it's, it's describing Stephen as being full of this grace, God's grace. But we know earlier in verse 5 that we saw several weeks ago, That he's not just a man full of grace, but he's a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. We know from verse 7 that he was a man of wisdom as well. And so we know exactly that that God was at work in his life in such a way that as as God's grace was, was lavished upon him, it had a great effect. And that, and that's what the Greek is emphasizing. Not so much the fact that, that, that he was saved and now God's grace was upon him, but the result of that grace. What was the effect of that grace upon Stephen? The effect was that he was able to do these wonderful wonders and signs. And, and, and it was something that he was performing. That doesn't mean that he was some actor. That means really that God was using him to do these signs and these wonders. And you'll remember that that when it speaks of wonders, it's speaking of the reaction to what is done. That it's always coupled with the sign, with the, which is the miraculous thing that God does, that goes beyond normal explanation. And so that's what Stephen is doing. And he's doing these signs not to authenticate his message, because his message is from God, but to authenticate him as the messenger. That's what God is doing, proving that what he is saying can be taken as true because God was behind this. 
But we need to recognize something significant about Stephen, right? He's not an apostle. And yet we see him doing these wonders and these signs. Up to this point, all that we have seen are the apostles doing these things. In Acts 2.43, it says that the signs and the wonders were taking place through who? Through the apostles. When we get to chapter 3, verses 4 to 8, and we're dealing with the paralyzed man, do you remember who it was that did the healing of that man? It was Peter, an apostle. 5.12, after the whole episode with Ananias and Sapphira. It says this, at the hands of who? The apostles. Many signs and wonders were taking place. And yet now, we see the work of miracles is not confined merely to just the apostles. That God is broadening that perspective, that work, in order to substantiate His messengers. In order to validate His messengers. And we're going to see this likewise in Philip, who also was one of the seven. And we'll see him in chapter 8 of Acts doing miracles as well. But is that all that Stephen was about? Was he just a miracle man? No, he was much, much more. And we know that because of the opposition that comes to him. Look at verses 9 and 10. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia rose up and argued with Stephen, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So we see first this word of contrast, contrasting what Stephen was doing and now with what these men from these synagogues are doing. So Stephen is boldly proclaiming God's word. He's healing. He's doing these miracles. And now this these synagogues, are stepping up in complete defiance to Him. They're wanting to stop Him. They're trying to oppose Him. And we have to recognize who these guys were. Who these synagogues represent. Because if we understand that, we understand exactly the transition that is going on here. Because these aren't native Jews. When it speaks of the the synagogue of the freemen, it's, it's talking about literally free men. The synagogue of those that have been freed. Other translations would say synagogue of the libertines because they have been freed. It's, it's most likely referring to the thousands of Jews who were taken to Rome by Pompey in, in around 60 BC. And afterwards they were set free. And when they were set free from being slaves, they were granted Roman citizenship. But we have to also recognize the difference between a synagogue and the temple. The synagogue is not the temple. They are two entirely different things. The temple was for worship. And it was where you went to, to do sacrifices and all sorts of other, other items. Whereas the synagogue was for instruction. And synagogues most likely originated because of the Jews in the dispersion during the Babylonian captivity that had been taken out of Jerusalem and the promised land and placed into Gentile lands. And now they were cut off from the temple. They had no place to worship. So what did they do? They, they made these synagogues. 
And that is where they would go to worship. That is where they would go to read the Scriptures. And now, even in Jerusalem, they have these synagogues. These synagogues where those that cannot speak Hebrew or read Hebrew were then meeting. And these verses depict two of these synagogues. And the first synagogue is is comprised of, of people that are called Cyrenians and Alexandrians. Cyrene is, 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 was the chief city of North Africa. And there's little known more about Cyrene, and, and, and yet Alexander, or, or Alexandria, there's much known about Alexandria. It was the capital of Egypt. And it's located in North Africa as well, which maybe that's what brought these, these people groups together in Jerusalem meeting in the synagogue. But not only was it the capital of Egypt, as far as the Roman Empire went, it was the number two city. The only city greater than Alexandria is Rome. And for nearly a thousand years, it becomes the center of Hellenistic philosophy and thought. So no doubt, all of the men that came from this region as well as from Cyrene, they they were heavily Greek in their thinking and in their education and in their philosophy and in their thought in so many other instances. And we're going to run into a man in in Acts chapter 18 named, named Apollos, and he comes from Alexandria. And then we see another synagogue that's made up of these two groups of people. Some from Asia, which is the Roman province in the western part of what is today modern-day Turkey. And then the second place is called Cilicia. And and that is in Asia Minor. And it was a, a Roman province. And what's particularly interesting to note about Cilicia is it contained a city named Tarsus. And it turns out that Saul came from Tarsus. The Saul who becomes the Apostle Paul. So it could be that this was Paul's synagogue and that this is where he came and spent most of his time. It could be further that when it talks about them gathering together and arguing with Stephen, that the Apostle Paul then saw of Tarsus was there arguing with Stephen. And it could be that throughout this whole ordeal, and and their interaction with Stephen, that this is what infuriates Saul and makes him go after believers that much more ravagingly was through this interaction that he had with Stephen. Why? Because he, like so many others, could not stand up to the arguments of Stephen. It, It says in the text they were unable to cope with what? The wisdom and the Spirit. Not just the the wisdom that came out of him, but the Spirit, the Holy Spirit was going before him. So they couldn't stand against him. They couldn't oppose him. And sometimes this word is taken personally, but here it's it's an attack waged against the arguments. And when it talks about being in an argument with Stephen, that they argued with Stephen, it's it's talking about a formalized debate. So no doubt they actually met in one of these synagogues and they were having a formal debate and yet nobody could stand toe-to-toe with Stephen. Do you remember what Jesus said? 
And I believe this is a, this is a fulfillment of what Jesus said to his disciples. In Luke 21, 13 to 15, he said this, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist. This is the fulfillment of that. And we're not certain exactly what the topics of this debate were, but we know one thing. Stephen won. (laughs) Stephen won continually to such an extent they couldn't say anything to refute him. So what do they do? They changed their tactic. They, They changed their game plan. Just as they did against Jesus in Matthew 26, 59 to 61, what do they do? They, they throw accusations at him. The accusations against Stephen. Look at verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. To secretly induce someone is. is to hire a person to act in a very particular way. It's, it's using someone by hint or suggestion. So they're planting people in the crowd. Why? For a particular result. It's almost like they have a two-step plan. The first step is to turn the crowd and everybody there against them. The second step is to then take, them, take him before the Sanhedrin so that they could go ahead and say, you're guilty of this blasphemy and now the punishment is death because that is the punishment for blasphemy and that is what the the allegation is a blasphemous word is something demeaning reviling and and spoken in relationship to God it was huge it's a sin against God with a high hand and it's done willfully And there's several different things that you could do that would require death. One, one you could do it as as a kind of idolatry. That you're worshiping an idol. Breaking the Sabbath. Neglecting circumcision. Cursing the very name of God. All of those had the penalty of being stoned by death. So they're no doubt going after what? They're, They're going after a particular emphasis. They're going after the crowd. And how do they do that? They, they, they say that Stephen is saying words against Moses and against God. Notice that, that word order in the Bible is important. Every word, every jot and tittle is inspired, is inerrant. So even the way in which Luke represents how they said things is important to us. Notice who they mention first. They don't say, oh, he spoke against God and Moses. They mention Moses first. Why? Because I believe that Moses was more important to them than God. Think about this too. How would they know that they had secretly induced some to, to speak these blasphemous words? The only way they can know is if somebody had told Luke. Which again speaks to the fact of what we're going to find out the end of chapter 7. That Saul of Tarsus was there. That the Apostle Paul was there. And I wonder if so many years later, as Luke and Paul traveled around, that no doubt, maybe often, the topic of Stephen came up. Why? Because Paul had rubbed shoulders with Stephen. 
But we need to recognize too exactly what they are doing by saying that Stephen is saying words against Moses and God. This would infuriate the people, which is exactly what we see happens, right? Look at verse 12. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. This, this word stir up is, is, is deep. It's, it, it, it's to excite, to arouse in such a way that you're emotionally pulling someone. It, it, it's from these two words, one being gasping and then the other one moving. And, and what are they trying to do? They're, they're literally trying to move everybody as, as one great big mass to a particular conclusion, a.k.a. what he's doing is wrong. He is a blasphemer. He deserves death. Today we say that, that they worked up the crowd. And no doubt this charge made against Stephen regarding the temple in particular would, would, would have infuriated the people because the temple was not just the center of religious worship, but it served as the means of, of their livelihood. And Stephen's preaching would, would appear as a threat to both. And so they, they had, so to speak, a lot of skin in the game. And they recognized for him to go after the temple was just far too much. And, and did you notice too that this is the first time since we've been looking at the book of Acts where we actually see the common people turning against Christ's church. Up to this point, they, they've been favorably dis, they've been favorably looking after the people. Not, not that I'm saying that, that all the time, because we know in, in chapter 5 that there were times where, okay, they had a favorable disposition towards the people and yet they actually didn't want to join the church. But they still looked upon them with good standing. Now everything changes. Before, do you remember the captain of the guard? They, they were actually scared to take the apostles in. Why? Because they thought the people would turn on them and stone them. And, and now we see that very same crowd actually turning on Stephen. And yet their work isn't done because that's only part of what they wanted to get done, to get accomplished. Look, look at verses 13 and 14. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. So now instead of just instigating men to, to scatter throughout the crowd and, and work the crowd up, now they've actually enlisted, they've hired some false witnesses who would then go and represent them before who? The, the council, before the Sanhedrin. All with the purpose of killing Stephen. That's what their agenda is. That's what they are planning on doing. But notice how they talk about Stephen. It, it again speaks to the, the character of Stephen. They, they say that this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. That he speaks of this Nazarene Jesus. What, what was he incessantly speaking about? Jesus Christ. Again and again and again, constantly, what was Stephen doing? He was preaching. Stephen was not just a miracle man. He wasn't just a miracle worker. He was an evangelist. 
He was a preacher of God's Word. And that's why it says that incessantly they looked at Him as, as preaching and teaching. And what was He preaching and teaching? Well, I'd say it's pretty obvious, but we'll see it when we get to chapter 7, exactly what He was preaching. But He was preaching, no doubt, that Jesus was greater than Moses, which is why they're trying to harangue everybody into thinking that He's against Moses. That isn't what He was saying. No doubt saying that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God, that Jesus was greater than the temple, and that Jesus fulfilled the law, and that Jesus was greater than all their religious customs and all their traditions. And I don't believe it was so much that they were putting words into Stephen's mouth, that they were just fabricating everything that he said. No, I think they were actually taking real things that he said, and then they were misinterpreting them, misrepresenting them, misapplying them, and turning them on end and using those against them, much like they did with Jesus, right? For Jesus had said this in, in, in Mark fourteen fifty eight, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And they use that to say, oh, he's talking about the physical temple. But we know that Jesus actually tells them, no, that isn't what he's talking about. He was talking about his body. So could it be that that is what Stephen was preaching about? That he was using the, the same terminology that Jesus himself used? And they, they would use that against him? Because he's not talking about the temple in that context. He's talking about the, his temple that's made with hands, his own body, talking about the crucifixion, that it would be destroyed. And that in three days, that he build another? He's, he's talking about the resurrection. But it's not entirely clear which words Stephen used in, in the context of Jesus and the destruction of the temple. All we know is that, that he grasped what Jesus meant and that they then twisted his words to use them against him. So we see these three charges that, that they make against Stephen. They, they say that, that he's against God, that he's against the temple, and that he's going to destroy their customs by what he is preaching and, and what he is teaching. Isn't it interesting that, that many of the same charges that were brought up against Stephen were also the ones leveled against Christ? It, it's what we see in Matthew 26. And I believe you know that you're in a good place when, when people are treating you just the way that they treat Christ. And I believe it goes a step further as we can see in our last point, and that is the appearance of Stephen. I, I believe in some way, much like Moses, Stephen is connected with God to such an extent that his appearance is, is, is different. Look at verse 15. This is, this is so challenging. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. What does that mean exactly? Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that he transfigured before them into an angel, that he transformed into an angel, sprouted wings or, or anything like that, or, or that his face all of a sudden became the face of the archangel Michael. Or, or this. No, it doesn't say that. I can tell you too, it doesn't mean that his face became like the face of a little baby, like the little cherubs that you see painted in paintings. and, and that's No, that isn't what it's talking about. What it means is, is, I think there's several aspects. 
On the one hand, it's talking about his disposition. That, that he had full composure before them. That, that he was unruffled. That he was calm. And, and, and it reminds me what we've already seen in the book of Acts. That as Peter and the apostles defended themselves before the Sanhedrin, and they were uneducated men, they hadn't gone to seminary. And do you remember what the response was from the Sanhedrin? They said, oh yes, these men had been with Jesus. And, and in, in a very similar way now, as they look at Stephen, they say, oh my, he's been with Jesus too. Because look at his face. It's like that of an angel. I believe that this fact that, 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 that he's now looking like an angel, not that he is an angel, but that he's like an angel, reveals one, that it, that it shows that, that he has a determination to speak God's word faithfully. That he's committed to speaking God's word faithfully and fearlessly, no matter what the circumstances are. And secondly, that, that it must reflect some sort of peace and confidence that he had that, that, that goes beyond what would be normally expected in, in, in this time. Why? Because he knows his God and he trusts him entirely. He knew whose hands were holding his life. But I believe it goes a step further. It, it actually uh, reveals to us that, that this is a man who had been inspired and, and, and in touch with God in, in, in such a way that, that he's now reflecting a touch of the glory of God. Remember, whenever angels show up, they're always bright. I, I believe that's what this is speaking of. That, that somehow God's glory was seen in Stephen right there before them. Maybe this had a profound impact on Paul. But isn't it ironic that, that they charged Stephen for speaking against Moses... And yet Stephen, no doubt, was connected to God, much like Moses was. And in fact, I, I think you can see the similarities between Moses and Stephen. Moses saw God's glory in the bush and, and later reflected God's glory to such an extent that, that he had to hide his face because he, he, he had been with God. And, and now we see Stephen, it, it's kind of backwards. He first reflects God's glory. And then we're going to see, in fact, turn there with me to chapter 7, to verses 55 and 56. So he kind of does it reverse. First, he, he represents God's glory, and then he sees God's glory. Whereas Moses saw God's glory, and then that glory was passed on to him through spending time with God and actually beholding God. Look at verses verses 55 and 56. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So what does he behold? What does he see? He sees the very glory of God in Jesus. Much like Moses. Luke is actually reversing the accusation that Stephen is against Moses by showing how Stephen actually follows the similar patterns of Moses regarding God's glory. In fact, could it be that as Moses reflected God's glory in the Old Testament, Stephen is now that depiction of Christ's glory in the New Testament? Remember, we're only given a small little snapshot of Stephen's life. Before you know it, he's going to be dead. 
Before you know it, he's going to be killed. He's only had so many months to live, and yet his entire life seems to be riveted upon the gospel. No matter what the circumstances, what is he doing? He's preaching. I believe we as believers, we need examples like Stephen. We need to get to know men like Stephen so that we can follow them, so we can know what makes them tick. What were the things that were important to him? This, this is why I believe the two men I mentioned at the beginning are, are so important. Why? Because they spent time with the Apostle John. And the things that mattered to John, no doubt, were passed on to Polycarp and Ignatius as well. And as we glean things from someone like Stephen, we need to pray and ask the Lord to give us the same desires. As Stephen was not only, he was controlled by God, he was committed to God and his word, and, and, and no doubt he was connected to God. And we should be similar. Let me close with some points to ponder, some things to consider. Number one, consider how the opponents of Stephen were unable to cope with the wisdom with which he spoke. The scripture gives no indication that this was because he was better educated, he was smarter or even more witty than, than the Jews he debated or that he went to a great debate school. It doesn't say anything about that. The key to Stephen's victory is what? It's in the Spirit's empowering. But what does this teach you about the key to witnessing? What are we so fearful of all the time? We're fearful we're going to mess up, we're going to do something wrong, when what we need to do is we need to trust the Lord and His empowering. Number two, consider how Stephen's face was like that of an angel. This description is of a person who is close to God and, and somehow reflects some of his glory as a result of being in his presence. My question for you and my question for myself all week has been this. How much time have you spent in God's presence this week? Communing with, with God in prayer, in his word. isolating yourself to such an extent that you can hear from the Lord and let His Word speak to you. That you would be connected to the Lord and, and as a result, people would see that. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You for Your wonderful Word. Thank You for the picture of Stephen, a man who was connected with You a man who was committed to, to your word and to you. And a man whose, whose characteristic was that he was full of grace, he was full of wisdom, that he was full of faith. Teach us to be like Stephen, Lord. In Jesus' precious name. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.com. Org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.